break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 27th of August, 2021. Happy Friday to you. Plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about Federal Reserve policy, racism in labor markets, and what all that says about capitalism versus socialism. We're also going to be talking about where the war in Ethiopia stands at the end of this week. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we're going to start with evidence of mass voter suppression all around the United States. Well, the national saga over... The right to vote is about to close another chapter as the Texas legislature is moving towards final passage of the controversial voting restriction bill that caused Democratic lawmakers to flee the state earlier in the summer to prevent the Republican majority from acting due to a lack of quorum. Over the past few days, however, a handful of Democrats have trickled back into the state house in Austin where the legislature is in special session, providing the necessary quorum for the bill to proceed. Despite no issues of any note regarding voter fraud in Texas or anywhere else, the Texas Republican Party has teed up this bill to restrict the ability of voters to cast a ballot by placing more hurdles in their way, reducing certain ways to vote, and increasing penalties on election officials for certain violations. And a significant chunk of the bill's provisions are explicitly aimed at areas where the majority of voters are black and or Latino. Among other things, the bill bans the use of drop boxes for mail-in ballots, the mailing of absentee ballot applications to all voters who are eligible, regardless of whether or not they request one, drive-through voting, and 24-hour voting locations. It also gives more power to poll watchers to intimidate voters. And among other things, it also requires mail-in voters to include identification numbers on their envelopes and applications that must match the data on their voter registration. They'd have to include their driver's license number, and if they don't have a driver's license, they can include the final four digits of their social security number. So you have to write it twice on the application itself and on the envelope to get a mail-in ballot delivered to you. And the latter requirement is typical of many of these various voter restriction bills where they add these little provisions that are designed to increase the opportunity to throw out ballots over minor mistakes. The Texas bill is one of dozens proposed or passed by Republican legislators around the country, despite there being no demonstrated history or present evidence of anything other than an infinitesimal amount of voter fraud. And by calling it infinitesimal, I'm probably overplaying it. As Republicans, however, have increasingly based their electoral appeal on exploiting white racial grievance, they have turned to trying to limit the votes of black and Latino working class voters by creating these various hurdles. While many people doubt the impact of these bills, the Brennan Center for Justice has recently studied the states that were freed from federal oversight of elections after the Voting Rights Act was gutted in 2013. These eight southern states have implemented versions of many of these same provisions being added or strengthened in these various voter restriction bills. 
And that's partially because these eight states are also some of the states at the forefront of passing these bills. Nevertheless, the upshot is that the black-white voting gap has risen dramatically, as has the overall non-white-white voting gap. So that means that fewer black people are voting relative to the number of white people are voting. Fewer non-white people in general are voting relative to the number of white people who are voting. So as the study by the center details, quote, while in 2012, the white-black turnout gap was shrinking in the states that we analyzed and in many instances even briefly closed, this trend has reversed in the years since. In 2012, seven out of the eight states had black voter turnout higher than that of white voters. In 2020, the reverse is true. In only one of the eight states was black turnout higher than white turnout. And they go on to further note, quote, in a few states, this reversal is especially alarming. Louisiana, South Carolina, and Texas had higher turnout gaps in 2020 than at any point in the past 24 years. South Carolina's white-black turnout gap widened the most, expanding by a staggering 20.9 percentage points within the eight years. And they go on to detail that, quote, a similar trend can be seen in the gap between white voters and all non-white voters. The total white-non-white turnout gap has grown since 2012 in all of the eight states. There is sufficient data to conclude that the gap has increased for blacks, Hispanics, and Asians in Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Texas. Notably, North Carolina went from having a larger share of non-white voters represented in 2012 with a white-non-white gap of negative 9.3 percentage points to having a gap of 5.4 percentage points, a jump of 14.7 percentage points, far greater than the national average of 4.6 percentage points. Now, just also to further understand that, that negative 9.3, so you can fully understand it, means that the gap is closing when it's a negative number. If it's above zero, if it's a positive number, that means the gap is widening. So growing by 9.3 percentage points there in North Carolina in 2012, but this year in 2020, growing by 5.4 percentage points. So cumulatively, it grew by 14.7 percentage points from 2012 to 2020, just so you're not confused there. Now, none of this should really be surprising. While these voter restriction bills are always promoted as benign, they always take aim at provisions that are overwhelmingly used by voters who tend to be majority working class and majority people of color, or they raise hurdles and barriers more likely to discourage people who are on the fence about voting, who also tend to be disproportionately working class and disproportionately people of color. It is a clear and direct attempt at suppressing these votes. Also disproportionately younger in both cases, by the way. So there you have it. American democracy, we're assaulting the right to vote based on fraudulent reasoning is the order of the day. The war in Ethiopia continues as the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front and its allies continue their offensive while the so-called international community continues to give them a pass. This week, the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission has leveled charges against the Oromo Liberation Army, an ally of the TPLF, accusing them of killing 210 people in several days of ethnic reprisal killings after Ethiopian military forces withdrew from the region where these killings took place. The OLA is denying these reports, calling them a gross distortion of the facts on the ground. And this is par for the course for the TPLF and its allies who deny all atrocities and human rights abuses that are attributed to them, no matter how well documented they may be. Notably, the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, which is an official government entity, has followed a different policy and issued critiques of all sides' actions throughout the conflict. 
Also this week, the UN Security Council met on the Ethiopian issue, with Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez stating that all parties must immediately end hostilities without preconditions and seize the opportunity to negotiate a lasting ceasefire. The UN meeting, however, revealed yet again, that this is not really an issue of co-equal responsibility. The TPLF statements in regards to the Security Council meeting claimed that they supported a negotiated solution, but at the same time, they actually rejected the African Union's mediation efforts announced this week. Further, they claim, the TPLF that is, that the Ethiopian government strategy is to starve them into submission when the United Nations has in fact refuted the claims that the Ethiopian government has not facilitated aid flows. In other words, that they have, even though they have criticized them. The most recent briefing by the UN Office on the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs states the following, quote, the situation in Tigray remains unpredictable and volatile while movement of Tigray forces in Amhara and Afar continues. And Amhara and Afar are two neighboring states to Tigray. And this is important because the Ethiopian government declared a unilateral ceasefire well over a month ago to facilitate the flow of aid. The TPLF then launched offensives in Amhara and Afar, where, by the way, they were caught last week raising a village to the ground. Now, because of their offensive, aid flows have slowed and the aid situation has actually gotten worse because hundreds of thousands have been displaced in those regions, Amhara and Afar. As it concerns Tigray, though, the UN also notes that, quote, access into the region remains restricted via the only road through the Afar region where there is insecurity and extended delays for clearances of humanitarian supplies and intense searches at checkpoints. Now, the international media is mainly blaming this all on the Ethiopian government, which quite honestly seems absurd. If there's an ongoing military offensive, obviously they are not going to just allow unfettered access into the region. So are they really to blame or are the people who started the offensive in the first place to blame? The UN clearly details that hundreds of aid trucks are entering Tigray, however, and even though they deem it not enough, hundreds of aid trucks are entering. And the UN also notes that their twice weekly flights into the capital of the Tigray region are taking place. So whatever else you want to say, whether you think it's inadequate, whether you feel the Ethiopian government isn't doing enough, clearly they are not pursuing a strategy designed to starve people to death in Tigray. Now, the United States, after briefly offering some critiques of the TPLF after reports of their atrocities became pretty hard to deny, has shifted back this week to heavy criticism of Ethiopia. In fact, Catherine Tai, the U.S. trade representative, threatened Ethiopia this week, saying that they are at risk of losing access to preferential trade agreements with the United States. The U.S. also sanctioned an Eritrean general and warned Eritrea not to re-enter the fighting. Essentially, the U.S. position seems to be that Ethiopia and Eritrea must accept unlimited escalation by the TPLF without responding in any way, shape, or form. Ultimately, the U.S. aim here is clear, to make Ethiopia negotiate on the TPLF's terms. For 30 years, the TPLF was a close U.S. ally, and clearly the U.S. wants to seize the moment to increase their leverage and control of Ethiopian politics and the broader politics in the Horn of Africa region. And some of the conditions that undoubtedly the TPLF would seek to impose in these forms of negotiations, some of which they've stated publicly, would include recognition of their total control over the Tigray region. Now, that's a matter that was in some dispute prior to the conflict. Also, it would include the annexation of parts of other regions by the TPLF, which is certainly bound to just further increase ethnic conflicts and almost certainly cause even more displacement. And also, the TPLF would undoubtedly seek more power in the federal government. 
TPLF is a bitter enemy of Eritrea. And while they haven't spoken that publicly about this, undoubtedly they would want to use any increased leverage they gained in the federal government to water down, stall, or even end the historic peace deal between Ethiopia and Eritrea signed by the current government. It's also worth noting here in terms of the narrative around the story in a recent New York Times article about Ethiopian military mobilizations, the Times outright lied and said Ethiopia started the conflict when, in fact, the TPLF openly admits they started the war. Either way, this just all goes to show how misunderstood this conflict is internationally. What's really happening here is a former ruling party that was sidelined because of its own long record of brutality and anti-democratic practices, launched a war to regain leverage in national politics, and has gained the support of its former Western allies in the process who are trying to put their thumb on the scale in order to assist them, them being the TPLF. This is a brutal conflict, no doubt. There's plenty to say about the behavior of all sides, but the reality is the messaging from the Western media and Western governments is not fact-based. It's deeply biased against the Ethiopian and Eritrean governments, and it's designed to create outcomes favorable to the imperial status quo in Africa, not to safeguard human rights. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell spoke in Jackson Hole, Wyoming today at the Fed's annual economic conference and more or less said everything is progressing the way the Fed was hoping and that they are anticipating no real major policy changes. On the issue of the Fed's massive bond buying program that has kept borrowing costs very low and fueled a debt binge all across the economy, Powell stated that they may start curtailing that policy, a process known as tapering, soon, but he was noncommittal on when that may take place, more or less stating that the COVID-19 outlook will be a key determinant of whether or not the Fed could take the economy off at least some of the forms of life support it is employing now. On the other closely watched issue of interest rates, Powell stated that the Fed isn't going to move to raise them anytime soon, and he argued that inflation right now is temporary. He highlighted the fact that specific sectors like used cars are driving inflation and that everything should settle down in a few months. Now, as we talked about earlier this week, the preponderance of evidence for now seems to be on Powell's side. For instance, in July, inflation decelerated at the fastest rate since February. That being said, it's a bit of an unknown, and Powell pledged to be vigilant. So end of the day, the Fed is signaling that they're going to keep shoveling cash into the financial markets to try to keep the economy from tanking and, hey, maybe perhaps even causing it to grow. Most analysts are revising their GDP estimates this year and predicting an economic slowdown due to the Delta variant. And this seems to account for the Fed's ambiguity of drawing back its bond buying program because clearly they aren't sure the economy can weather a slowdown. The reality is the economy right now is not as strong as most economists in the mainstream are trying to claim. Despite the constant economic boosterism, warning signs are or should be flashing all around. Record sums in borrowed money in excess of $814 billion this year are being spent by stock speculators. The Wall Street Journal noted earlier this year that, in fact, the amount of money being borrowed by people to speculate on stocks is up 49% from one year earlier, and it's actually the fastest annual increase since 2007 during the frothy period before the 2008 financial crisis. And before that, the last time investor borrowings had grown so rapidly was during the dot-com bubble in 1999. <laughs> Warning sign if there ever was one. 15% of small cap companies, that's companies that are between $300 million and $2 billion in terms of their value, 15% of those companies are in fact zombie companies, companies that don't make enough money to cover their interest payments. Overall, zombie companies in the U.S. owe $2 trillion, which is more than even at the height of the 2008 crisis. 
Bloomberg adds about that point, not only are firms staying in a zombie state for longer than in years past, but of the roughly 60% of firms that do manage to ultimately exit zombie status, many nonetheless experience prolonged weakness in productivity, profitability, and growth, leading to long-term underperformance. So clearly, without the Fed's actions making debt super cheap, it's not clear how many of these firms borrowing heavily can really make it. That's why the Fed doesn't want to raise interest rates, either because they're not confident that enough companies could pay higher interest rates to avoid a wave of defaults, or they're not really clear whether or not any of these companies that are already being floated by people loaning them debt, hoping that it just all turns around, would be able to find any way, shape, or form to make it if they pulled back their money at all. The perverse side of this is that the amount of money being pumped into the system by the Fed is so huge that when you combine the fact that it's only happening because of a feared crash, the Fed is also signaling to banks and hedge funds that they will in fact be bailed out by saying that they'd rather lend more money to the markets to underwrite risky behavior than pull back and let people fail. The risk fears are so large, they're signaling that, hey, this whole thing is just too big to fail. So we're just going to keep it going. Now, all that being said, there are plenty of progressives, in fact, actually most of them in the world of economists, who favor the Fed policy and argue that a pullback does, in fact, risk slowing things down, might, in fact, risk opening up the possibility of a crash, and that this, of course, is bad for workers. No doubt. Economic downturns, not good for working class people. The Economic Policy Institute, a labor movement-oriented economic think tank, offered up another very interesting reason to keep the Fed policies going in addition to these just general reasons. And that is that they have the potential to close racial gaps in the labor market. They note that reductions in the unemployment rate boost black employment more than white employment and boost black wages more than white wages, at least in a relative sense. And this makes sense because since there is more structural unemployment in the black population because of racism in the labor market, the tighter the labor market is, the more racist employers are forced to hire black people. They also note that as economic output increases, it has a significant impact on the structural unemployment gap between blacks and whites for the same basic reason we just detailed. Either way, the point they are making is quite clear and quite logical. The closer you get to full employment, the harder it is for employers to discriminate. As the pool of job seekers shrinks, those the labor market has been excluding in the highest numbers have to be tapped. And this is a very interesting observation because it states implicitly but clearly that structural unemployment in black America cannot be solved under capitalism, since capitalism cannot have full employment. It, in fact, defines full employment as a few percentage points of unemployment. Capitalism must have workers competing for jobs or capitalists lose all leverage of the terms of employment, wages, and benefits which, of course, will erode their profits. And profits lead investment, and thus the whole cycle of capitalism. The only way to actually have true full employment is central planning, to take all the available needs and wants of society and deploy the various resources, human and material, to meet all the needs and as many of the wants as prudent. In fact, this is a much more logical way to accomplish full employment and thus eliminate the racial gaps in the racist labor market than to be keeping the Federal Reserve policy of facilitating debt-fueled casino gambling on Wall Street as the primary economic growth engine. It is, in short, just another brief for why we need socialism. That's the punch-out for today. 
We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 